Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, he starred on one of my all-time favorite TV shows, 30-something. He played Elliot. His name is Timothy Busfield, and he is a producer and a writer and a director and an Emmy Award-winning actor with over 650 credits. But some of the standouts include for television, as I said, 30-something, but also The West Wing and Entourage and For Life and Almost Family and Designated Survivor and Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. On film, he's been in Field of Dreams and Revenge of the Nerds and Quiz Show and Sneakers, to name a few. He's directed over 140 episodes of television. He's served as a producing director on many TV shows. On Broadway, he starred in A Few Good Men and Brighton Beach Memoirs. He has started theater companies that are so long-lasting, both for adults and children. He is a professor of theater, He is a philanthropist and a brilliantly funny, kind, special human being. Welcome, Tim Westfield, to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Where are you right now? I am in our home up in uh, Highland Lake, New York, which is near Berryville, uh, up uh, probably about 20 minutes from Bethel, where they had Woodstock. Um, this is our, our home up here, and we have a place in the city. But, uh, you know, we got out, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and a month ago, and we've been here ever since. So as soon as the city shut down, you guys packed up and went upstate? Well, not real. I mean, we packed up earlier. I was scheduled to start shooting the uh, pilot episode of 30 something else, which is the sequel to 30 something. And we were going to start shooting on Monday. And on Friday, we got the call that we were being canceled because of the virus. So uh, the next morning, we packed up a bunch of stuff and just headed up here. And that was Gosh, that was back in March. So uh, it was, you know, before they locked up the city, uh, just before, I think. So let's let's not bury the lead. 30-something is one of 
my all-time favorite touchstones uh, in television history. I am one of many, many people who feel that way. A bucket list moment for me as a young actress was to get to be on the show. Um, Mm -hmm. This beautiful episode about Emily Dickinson when uh, Peter Horton is teaching a class about her poetry and he ends up having a whole fantasy sequence with her. Um, And I really thought at that young age, if nothing else, if I don't achieve anything else, I have been able to be in real time a part of something that I love so much. That really was uh, one of the most uniquely special television programs. And I don't know if it's something you are sick of talking about or happy to talk about. You'll have to tell me how you feel about it. I won't spend the entire episode talking about it, but it was such um, a seminal touchstone moment. And I wonder if my experience as a viewer and my four days on set, which remain a highlight of my life, (laughs) um, if if it still remains for you such a special moment in your career. Well, first of all, you were great. Uh, and it brought the show, the writing brought the best out of all of us. Um, yes. And I think, I think that, um, yeah, you know, you look, uh, for me at least, you know, I mean, there's different, there's, there's different types of roles and there's different types of, of, uh, you know, uh, stories. And the, the most affecting stories, long lasting are generally those that sort of mirror real life. Um, uh, you know, the, the Saturday matinees of star Wars are fantastic. Uh, and you can see all the action Marvel movies. Those are great. And I wish I was in one and I wish I was, you know, uh, it'd be really fun to be in one of those, but artistically to be able to go to work and, read your learn your lines and kind of aim them at fellow men as if to say look how messed up we are look how i'm going to show you the juvenile side of our behavior and that doesn't happen often uh that as you know we're artists but we don't often get to be artists and in Many shows, you know, the West Wing, I love the West Wing. My job was to support Allison, who is there to show you how difficult it was to be uh, a staffer in the White House. Uh, Here, I got to kind of say in my own way every time and bring to it, this is how I can mess up a relationship. Can you identify? And I always aimed it at the guys. uh, you know, uh, and I would have guys come up to me and say, you're blowing my rap, dude, you got to chill. Uh, and I'd say to my wife, don't you ever shave your legs anymore? I had affairs. I tried to justify them. I could spend money. She couldn't spend money. So many things they wrote into their own juvenile behavior that I got to share. Uh, and it became a, you know, it became an, an artistic experience for me. There were episodes where it was clear my only job was to keep the rhythm up, uh, you know, especially across from Ken Olin. Uh, uh, and Kenny, you know, although when he needed to, he would exhibit that, that outrageous behavior. But when he was the center of a storyline, often he just couldn't. He wasn't, it wasn't written that way. He was going to be 
he was written in the middle and it was up to us around right. him and, musically. And sort of the, right and the straight man to your you know the, the the Elliot and Michael show you know he he would sort of set up Elliot to become more outrageous in some ways yeah and that was that was the you know that ended up being the kind of music and buried in that was so for me yes you know I would say you know people for me the most artistic best experience I've ever had as an actor in my life without a doubt was 30 something. Um, just, well, the, I'm they so wrote glad that the thing so we well. love. Yeah. Mm. Can you, um, do you remember auditioning what the process was well, and you had already done yeah, Trevor I, John right before that? Yeah, I had done, let me see. I'd done an ABC series called Reggie. Uh, six episode, Barbara mm-hmm. Berry, Gene Smart, Richard Mulligan, six and out in 1983. And then uh, uh, while I was standing by in, a, in Brighton Beach Memoirs, I did an ABC series as one of the regulars, then went back to standing by, then moved out to L.A. Uh, at the end of that year uh, because I couldn't get a Broadway role without having TV and film credits. And I'd get close, but I just couldn't get, I couldn't close the deal on, on, on a roll. And so I thought I'll go to LA and I'll get some TV credits and then I'll come back and do Broadway and sort of did some guest spots and did Trapper John MD and did, you know, 39 episodes of that and was able to go to dailies every day and, and really watch my work and grow on a show that nobody was watching anymore. I came in year six and seven with Brian Stokes Mitchell and, and Greg Harrison and and Purnell and the cast that we had great experience for me and a show that was under the radar I think maybe from the beginning but certainly by years six and seven which is when I was there and I at the end of that when I knew it was ending I moved to Sacramento and I started a nonprofit equity theater that was going to tour the elementary schools junior highs and high schools uh, and tried to make theater part of the curriculum and see if this might be a fix for what I was seeing as the American theater, you know, downslide. And I went up there and did that. And uh, I had Revenge of the Nerds 2 that I knew was coming up in the, in, in the second half of, which would have been 87 in the winter of 87. I moved to Sacramento in May of 86. And it kind of said, I'm not going to do TV now. That was great. I got a feature coming up with a sequel to, and I think I want to just play that game. I think I'm going to play the the feature film game for a bit. And I was 29 at the time. And I got the script and I was with Roe Diamond at Century Artists in Los Angeles. And I got the script and I read it and I was like, oh my God, this this is the best script I ever read. But I was reading for Peter Horton's role. And um, I, I read it and I thought, geez, what? I'm a, the Playboy guy? And, and I don't know, uh, but I'll give it a shot. And so I went down and I read and they said, would you read Elliot? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll read Elliot. Elliot, I'd rather play Elliot. So I read for Elliot and then I got offered both. And they said, which one do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I don't know anything about being, you know, the, the sort of 
uh, ladies man hunky guy but i can screw up a marriage i'll play that guy um and so i focused on that and i let uh, they it wasn't an offer at that point it was you know they wanted to hone it down to which one i wanted to do and then i had to go to the network um and the first audition i had to push uh, because i was 29 um and the guy was written in the mid 30s and i was pulling facial hair out of my face trying to get it so i could look like i was older um and i had an apartment in la with a with a friend of mine carl freed and and i went down there and I went in red and we immediately got along really well uh, the very first time. And that was Gary. And then they said, let's do Elliot. And then that was even better. Uh, and then uh, I went, they, they, they cast Ken uh, Olin, I think first. And we went in and read together at the network. And I remember being out in that lobby at ABC at the network audition. And I got back to the apartment I had in Brentwood and, about 20 minutes after I walked in the door, I got a call from Marshall Herskovitz saying I got it. Um, it was, those guys were really smart. I mean, nobody got, I don't know if anybody got outright offers on it. Maybe Horton, they know they wanted him. They wanted him to direct. They wanted Peter to be a part of the process because they, they knew him as a director more than an actor and liked him more as a director. And he was, I would say, one of our best directors, certainly on the show. Yeah. Um, um, but I, you know, it was, they were smart about making sure that, that you could, you could play their music, that you could say their stuff without sounding like you're acting, um, which was really important towards the naturalistic style that you'd be able to, you know, memorize their words and then spit them back out as if they were coming from you for the first time. Um, and a lot of people couldn't do that. Uh, it just was, it was either, it was either it was in your ear or not much like Sorkin, either it's, it's in your ear right. or it's not, you know, either you, you can do it or you can't. Right. Did you guys improvise on that show? I did. Uh, it was not, uh, they, they, boy, they let me, I had such freedom on that show and they don't like me talking about it. And if they hear this, they won't like it. And if the kids that are on the show and in the new 30 something here, they're not going to be happy, but they, they yeah. really let, they let me, they let Kenny and I go in a lot of ways. And we mm -hmm. would often, we would often, if anything, if we rehearsed a scene and it felt like you could tell it was written, you know, if there were jokes that were clearly, but I'm bump, you know, Neil Simon jokes, you know, but I'm bump, but I'm right. bump. They would write, they would write those, but they would feel unnatural. So we would break them up and still figure out how to deliver them. And it was often that Ken and I would exchange lines to keep scenes tumbling. So I would say this, you know, we'd go to the script supervisor and, you know, get the pencils out and say, well, I'll say, why don't I say this part and you say that part and then I'll say this part and we would do that. Uh, and Ken and I had a lot of freedom to do that. Um, I think because, you know, we'd done enough, we were aware enough of the story that we wouldn't drop anything or lose any of the values that the writers wanted. So the, I mean, there are so many 
artistic heartbreaks that are happening right now, you know, whether you were in a show and it wasn't able to open or it closed temporarily or forever because it won't be able to sustain itself financially while waiting for this virus uh, slash pandemic to end or let us return to some kind of normal life. But the um, the idea of a 30-something reunion, which is now being called 30-something else, actually happening was a fantasy for so many people for so long. This is actually, not only was it, it hap- I mean, it was really about to start. So how did um, how did they get everybody back? Were you involved in the process of making the story um, come alive for this sequel? And just what can you tell me? I know that obviously everything's on hold for all of us, but what can you tell me about 30-something else? Going forward? Um, yeah. Going uh, backwards and like going retroactively uh, sure. and in the future. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, uh, I was not... I, you know, my attitude is, uh, you know, on a TV show to last a hundred episodes with a character, uh, I can't be involved in what my character's doing here or there, each episode specifically. I did have an arc and we discussed that. And I remember being a part of that in the very first one and saying, they said, we're going to split you and Nancy up. What do you think? Where do you want it to go? What would you want to do with it? They were really, they're really cool. These are feature guys, right? These are feature directors. These are Edswick and Marshall Herskovitz are, you know, I mean, the, some of the most successful, Edswick's one of the most successful film directors of our time uh, with right. Legend of the Fall and Courage Under Fire and Glory and Last Samurai and, and won an Academy Award for producing Shakespeare in Love. These are guys that that have a sophistication, which we all want as actors. Uh, and, and they incorporate us. They love actors, like most of the great writers and directors. Um, there isn't that TV distance. And so we were able to talk about the arc of Elliot. And, and I remember saying, well, what a, you know, because a bit of it had happened to me. And the more we could bring real life into that show, the more it was going to be perceived as authentic. And I said, you know, what if this guy looks for something in single life that doesn't exist and realizes and then realizes that everything he had was in his own backyard. It was all there with Nancy, that he couldn't be any better without her, that there was nothing he could find better without her. And maybe there's some spiritual change later in him. And they, and they, I knew I, they wrote to that and I could see they were writing that. So in episodes where I was a lead character, I knew that was going to happen. We did not have that conversation on this show yet. I think it's too early. Um, I think that conversation is best right around episode 13, 12, 13, when the writers know exactly what they have. Um, These guys are smart enough to, to know that in the first you know, six or 12 episodes, they're going to see what their team is. They're going to see if the actors have the ability to play the music that they have in mind for them. Uh, or if they were, if they, if they let their limitations are, are going to keep them from going uh, uh, into a certain or inspire them 
to go in a certain direction. I mean, so much of our job, I believe, and having come into Trapper John MD and seeing writers so upset at actors and seeing why they were upset at actors and really being able to say, oh, I see. If you are dicky to a writer about their words, then when they go to the keyboard to write your stuff, they're going to freeze. And if you're demanding or critical or if you are driving the boat on what your character should be, then you're losing the muse that that writer needs to be able to burn. And every TV show, every single TV show we've ever seen uh, on a film, dramatic TV show has been be- successful because the writers were on fire and the actors got great right. stuff. On a Friends, they get the same writing every single week, yet the actors, their ability to make that writing fresh and funny, that's really up to them. So, But in the hour format, to last 100 episodes, I really think it's my job to do what the writers, to make what they've written for me play. And if I have a clear idea on what my character wants in an arc, you know, or where at least, you know, what, what, you know, those basic fundamentals, what my objective is or what my character's looking for overall in his life, then I can apply that to whatever writing they give me, as long as they're also writing that arc. I think we would have got there uh, on the 30 something else. I mean, Elliot and Nancy have Ethan and Brittany. Brittany lives with uh, uh, Janie, who's is is um, Ken Olin and Mel Harris's kid, uh, and uh, my son Ethan has an infant that he's had with you know a, a girl and he's in a band with. Yet that baby ends up at our house day and night. So I'm a sixty. <laughs> Patty Wedding and I are 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 are, are parents again. To an infant, uh-huh. which is I can't I can't wait to play, uh, and of yeah. course I'm a hands-on dad. I was a diaper changer and all of that stuff. I'm sure Elliot was comically uh, inept uh, at taking right. care of a baby. So the idea of of being able to play that, uh, uh, you know, feeding a baby when you know the wall, all that stuff, I, I really look forward to. Um, we don't know. Uh, the pilot was what we were going to shoot. There have been, you know, ABC is now faced with, are we going to just go straight to series? I don't think you go back and make the pilot at this point. So, you know, the, it's the balls in their court. And if we can find a place to shoot it, that is virus free enough, you know, as soon as we get rolling, I think, I honestly think they're, you know, it's, you know, that they've written, they ordered scripts. So we have, I've read four of the first order. So it feels like if we get a shot, we'll be there. So can I ask you, because so many people in every industry, I I live in this industry and I know every kind of workplace is having this conversation. When you talk to your friends, I mean, you're a producer, a director, an actor. There's, you've worn every hat and continue to wear every hat so effortlessly and fluidly and inspirationally. Um, What are those conversations like? What do people, like I was thinking, do you have to have a certificate of health? Like how do you create a set 
with everyone being able to do their job in the future, um, when you say a safe, you know, virus-free place, what are those conversations like between you and your colleagues looking forward? Well, that's really, I mean, boy, I tell you, that's, that is the conversation too. I think, I think, I mean, let's, let's start with what the, the industry is, they've got to make money. All those towers in Los Angeles filled with executives, they have to make their money. Um, and the network needs to show that it's, you know, of value to the bigger corporation it's a part of. Television for the big corporations, you know, the GE and people like that, the refrigerators make much more money than any other TV shows. Uh, but it is a place to advertise, right? So we're going to see that engine rolling. And just like if we start here with a podcast, you and I are in separate homes talking. The next up from that would probably be a talk show where you had somebody take their temperature and maybe have a test and go on and sit with Ellen. Uh, no live audience, probably. Uh, I think that's the way it would roll out. Let's keep the numbers as small as we can, but let's start filling the hours with programming. Um, I think they're going to start looking creative like they did in the strike when they started finding reality TV uh, back in the day when that started to boom. Uh, and I think that came out of the writer's strike um, when they needed improvised TV. Um, I think we're going to need to see those adjustments. Um, I think the last thing that's going to happen, honestly, is probably, uh, you know, the, the one hour TV where each week, you're going to another dozen to 15 to 20 locations, going in other people's homes you don't know, going in, especially in New York City. I think that's probably the last that would find, that could safely find life. Hopefully it's first back because I'm on an ABC show called For Life that shoots in, a, in New York. But I think you're going to see the sitcoms. I think they're going to start shooting in July. I think they're going to be able to control those. Again, I think you'll nix, they'll nix the live audience, which they don't need anyway, um, especially right. on the ones that have been around around a while. I mean, there are actors who just perform better on sitcoms when the audience is there, but they're going to have to deal with that. But if you look at your half-hour multicam shows, and I just directed a Connors in December, um, when the crew rolled in, there still only felt like there were 20, 25. Whereas on a, a one hour film right. show, we got a hundred people and then we got all kinds of new people coming in the next episode and locations. I think that's just going to be a bit slower. And I think feature films that are really big and, and, and anything which is big with lots of moving parts is probably going to have to wait for a vaccine. Uh, I think that the American theater, um, is, is going to get, um, it has a great opportunity to, uh, have to reinvent itself. Um, right. I don't know if it'll ever come back. Honestly, I don't know if we'll ever see without a vaccine, full houses on Broadway. Um, 
I don't know if that I that's the one that concerns me the most. We can stay small, right. which we talk about when I talk to my friends. We can stay small in in independent movies and things like that. We can make our own TV. I, I think, and you hate to talk about silver lining because it always sounds like you're really thinking about all the positives that can come from a disaster. But the truth is, right. is that from this suffering will come art. Just like the WPA mm-hmm. came out of the depression and just like World War II spawned Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. And I think you're going to start to see that people, the need to express and entertain has got to find new form. Uh, and we're, right. we're just going to have to get creative. Um, and I think it's doable. I think, uh, uh, I think what I think is that immersive theater, um, in people's homes for a larger ticket price could be a thing of the future. Um, let's do, you know, if, if Maddie, Maddie and Sarah Jessica Parker were going to do a Neil Simon play on Broadway. Well, we're going to Plaza suite. Is that what they're doing? Um, let's do it in someone's home up on the, up, up on the upper East side. Let's, let's, let's make the ticket price 700 bucks and, and play for 40 people. Um, and see if there's any possible way we can keep the theater alive in in more inventive, creative ways. Um, I think you're going to see theater move to the round uh, to spread people out and to eliminate upfront mm-hmm. costs of sets. I think that the round, the value of theater in the round, which I think is that you're not faced with upfront costs. Um, I think you're going to see, I don't know whether... I don't, I don't know how equity survives it, honestly, but I, if equity would ever wake up, which I'm very frustrated and was frustrated with them, and make sure that we have on one contract, and that is the theater for young audience. I think that we will be, we must make theater a part of the, our youth's curriculum. Otherwise, they'll never trust it. They won't grow up with it. They won't see it. A four-hour Annie uh, that your sister's in in high school isn't going to get it done. And, you know, we may not even see those days again. So I think we're going to have to be taking great theater to the kids, make sure they're growing up with inspired actors like you and like Sarah Jessica Parker, and see those young 22 and 23-year-olds. And I think we're going to have to force that audience to... To, dev- to, to come with us. I think any romance that says we have to go back to what we were is only going to make a lot of people sad. Uh, I don't think it's mm-hmm. going to happen. I, I would not feel comfortable uh, sitting in a 1,500-seat theater, even having tested negative for the virus. Right. I don't know. And I don't think your average American is going to want to do it. Uh, um, I think there's going to be a skittishness for quite some time. And the American theater's on thin ice already. I don't, the money that, that the theater, our theater in Sacramento might get from 
you know, the, the, from Congress and from, you know, these, what's going on right. is only going to last a few months. It's only going to last a few months, but w- what do we do if we can't put people back in the theater by, you know, November? I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how to survive. And the remounting of the plays that are on Broadway, how much money is that going to take? And will they have the ticket prices to sustain it? I don't know. Right. It's scary. And if and if you have those ticket prices, then that then that does such a disservice to the young people that you're talking about who are already not able to go see so many of these things, right? I mean, if the ticket yeah. price is seven hundred dollars, we're already dealing with kids. You know, most of us can't go through that. So it's all it's a vicious cycle in that way. Yeah, nobody can do it. I think that that would be the Broadway end of it. I think that. Hopefully, what we sure. see all the way down to the to college, I think that's where it's going to have to start getting real creative. I think people are going to say, "Hey, you know," which you really only do when you're like rock star age, which is in your twenties, and is like, you know, screw this, right? I got to do a play. Let's do it at Tommy's house yep. and invite a bunch of people over. Uh, we've got to perform. We've got to create art from that. And I don't know what it is, and I'm sort of throwing spaghetti against the wall and thinking, could it be this or could it be that? And as a theater producer, I certainly don't know what the answer is, but Mm. I'm counting on this new wave of artists um, that are going to help the American theater into the next millennium. We were not in good shape at all. You can look at Broadway and say, oh, look, it's all lit up and there's tourists coming in to see uh, a Groundhog Day and Beetlejuice and movies turned into plays. And I saw those plays. I have friends in those plays. Uh, what's going to happen to the Guthrie, Louisville, the Arena, the Alley, Denver Playhouse, Cleveland Playhouse? How are those theaters that run at a 60% earned, 40% contributed income when they're only making 60% of their money anyway, how are they going to survive an eight-month layoff? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how they come back. Can I switch gears for a second from Please. that? Get me uh, off this. Very... I'm sweaty. <laughs> no, no. It's so, um, we're all having these conversations in our minds and it's really nice to have them with other people that we love and respect. And really just to hear anyone else's voice is a joy at this moment. But when you talk about theater and early days, and I guess, I guess I have a couple of things I wanted to talk about before um, our internet breaks down. Um, First of all, Matthew Broderick on my podcast told me one of the most hilarious stories I've ever heard about you and him when you were covering him in Brighton Beach. And I sort of want to know, A, if you remember the story, and if you do, it has to do with garlic gum. Um, Is there (laughs) anything about those two words that ring a bell? And do you remember that story? Oh, yeah, I remember it really well. I was, um, you know, we were all sort of backstage, and and Maddie had a... uh, he had it looked like a it looked like a Christmas tree of candy, and he said, "Have one uh-huh. of those." And so I said, "Oh, all right, I'll have one." And now he goes down, and he sends Pam Adelon, who was also standing by on the show. He sends Pammy up to tell me to not eat it. 
and I already was sort of halfway through it. I was enjoying it at first, and now I was starting to get really like, this is disgusting. And it was garlic candy. It was a prank. And she goes, don't eat it, don't eat it, it's garlic. And she thought it was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. So I thought, okay, all right, game on. And I had been, um, I was, I would Maddie standby, and I was Yelko standby uh, in, in the play. And I had, the great I, uh, from, from the, yeah, who I just both those guys. And so good, those two guys. I never went on. I was in the play a year. I never went on. I kind of never wanted to do it just once. And both of them were so great. And, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, and Maddie was playing 15-year-old uh, uh, Brooklyn Jewish uh, um, innocent. And I was 25 with a baby. Uh, so uh, I was up for the Jelko part. I was the runner-up for that. And they thought whoever covers him will also cover Eugene. So. I knew the role of Eugene and I knew the opening monologue. And I also knew that Matthew never really did it without reading it. He never really did the show without reading that opening monologue. And, and well, he's reading from I, a I journal was, in the play. He's reading from a journal. He comes out and says, these are my memoirs in Brighton Beach Memoirs. And he reads the opening of the, the play. Neil gives him the, the sort of opening of the play. And it's written inside one of those little composition, black and white sort of composition books, which is his prop. And I was fairly sure that Maddie didn't know it. So I, before the show, went back and I taped a piece of paper over the monologue inside the book that said garlic, ha, with an exclamation point, H-A-H with an exclamation point. And then Robin Morris and Pam and myself and uh, uh, we all went to the back of the house. Uh, the the understudies went in the back and we were at the Kern in San Francisco. And it gets to that point and he opens that book up and we're dying. And he looks up <laughs> at the audience, looks in the wings where he doesn't see me. But then he can hear us laughing. We're the only ones. The audience is going, speak, speak. And, and, and Pam and myself, we're in the back of the house laughing. And, and uh, uh, he, he made it through it. He started into it. Um, and he almost, with tears in his eyes, thanked me. Because he was getting, you know, we'd gone L.A., opened at the Amundsen, gone to San Francisco. He turned 21 in the process. He wanted to go to Bro. We wanted to get back to New York and open the thing. It was a huge out of town pre Broadway. You know, we were we rolled out. We, it was a, uh, you know, we sat in L.A. and then we sat in San Francisco for weeks. And he was bored out of his mind. He was just, just champing at the bit to get to New York. And it was a a great moment for him. A great gag. Uh, one of probably his first moment in a big Broadway house where he'd had somebody fuck with him in a way that he was going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. He was gone. He was nowhere. Yeah. The actor it was all actor. Eugene Morris Jerome was not evident anywhere on stage. It was all Matthew Broderick saying, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to absolutely kill that guy.
It was a great story. Well, when he told me this story, his he we were crying and laughing and tears streaming down our face because it's still just the best. And I was thinking about how it's a really interesting thing when you witness somebody's, like I was doing Charlie Brown on Broadway and Kristen Chenoweth was in it. And you saw sort of the escalation of really talented, beloved actor in a community to a megastar, right? Like the way people responded to her in that show changed her life forever. And I was thinking that during Brighton Beach, Matthew, who was adorable and charming and came from a wonderful artistic family, that job changed his life forever. That persona and that character. And you were there sort of watching it. Yeah, I was there. Not only was I watching it, he couldn't. I was the first. I blocked a bunch of it. I spent. I was the first. I rehearsed the first four or five days because Matthew was finishing war games and he'd lost his dad and mm-hmm. Neil wouldn't wait for Matthew. So I was flown out for the first day of rehearsal and I did the blocking of and then I showed him the blocking. So instead of in a normal situation, the, the standbys and the understudies, they roll in well later and learn it from the back of the house. Um, I was there kind of helping odd in some odd way, helping him through the blocking in a, you know, a sort of, you know, a, more like a stage manager uh, with him. Uh, and you they did just a really kept me good job with that blocking. It that was, you know what, he was so, he was dream. He was so good. He was so good. But I tell you what I saw with him, which was great. First of all, you knew, I mean, I was like, I'm Gene Sachs would say, stop doing it. We do put in rehearsals and stuff. And he would say, stop doing it like Matthew. And I say, he's fun. <laughs> funny when Matthew does it like that. He was adorable, but he also had the movies come out. You know, I mean, he he had right. done Max Dugan Returns and War Games is there. So he really had the double. You can open on Broadway and become big in the Broadway community uh, and and be an overnight sensation in the Broadway community, which which he did in a way, although people were very aware of him. I was down at Circle Rep when he was in Torch Song and Jelko was in Cloud mm. Nine. And I was right. a lead at Circle Rep. So. We were all off Broadway, and I knew, we all knew about each other. I was in something that Kenny Lonergan, I mean, we all, we all kind of were aware that, 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 that we were around um, at the time, and people knew about Maddie at the time. But the combination of the, the movies coming uh, while doing that play really sort of made him the megastar internationally that he was, um, mm. you know, on Broadway, he proved that, you know, he would adjust to an audience at 21 as well as any actor I'd ever seen to laughs, right. to playing the audience, to work in the audience, to physically getting laughs on a head turn. I mean, he found a way to communicate with an audience at a young age that was, I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, I'd got to work, I'd already worked with Kathy Bates and William Hurt and people like, I mean, I'd worked with good people in, in the theater. Uh, I would never have taken the understudy job if I didn't have a, a baby, if I didn't have a six month right. old kid. And I, right. I was making a thousand bucks a week versus 235 a week on, 
off Broadway at Circle Rep, which is what, you know, was there. So I got a chance to weigh him against Chris Cooper and other actors who I'd already done plays with and Bates. And I was like, this guy's up with them. He's, he's, he's the real deal. You could absolutely see it. As with Joko, you could absolutely see it. As with Pam Adeline, even though she was in a understudy position, she was perfect. Right. You could see it. Well, it's funny. I mean, when I, so I guess my question for you is when you did 30 something, when you start looking back at when you started walking around in the world and people were noticing you, was it, what was the part that sort of took you from working actor who felt lucky to be a working actor to feeling like a celebrity? Yeah, it was 30 something for sure. Yeah, it was. It was 30-something. I mean, I'd already been through, I'd already been, you know, I was a fairly good baseball player growing up and had started signing autographs for young kids when I was a teenager because of sports, oddly enough. You know, I was a, you know, I was a sort of all this or all that. And then, you know, kids would come around and I had a sense of a mini, mini celebrity uh, when I, and so uh, as an athlete. And so I was kind of aware of what that was like, but 30 something I had, you know, that I'd never experienced anything that boomed like that. And it did, you know, at first you're like, Oh, you recognize me. And then you go, what? You don't recognize me. And then you're like, Oh crap. They recognize me. Uh, so, you know, you kind of go through that. And then you get to the other end and you're, you, you just, you become kind of oblivious. Um, I did go, I, I experienced that at an older age, but having seen Maddie go through it, having seen people go through it and, and how, how it, how it, you know, uh, crept into their, their, you know, their bloodstreams and might've affected who they are and who handled it well and who didn't handle it well. You know, I had a bit of a, a, a lead up to that and I still didn't handle it well. Right. So, you know, what are, what, when you say that, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you start, you start, you know, between publicists and agents, you start to believe when you're on the phone with them and they say, you're important. And you say, I, I am important. Doggone it. You know, how dare they work me so hard and how come, that actor gets steak and I get chicken. What the heck? I'm more valuable. And you sort of, lo- you're, you're, you, as people feed your celebrity, I mean, you certainly see it right now with Mike Pence. Uh, I, uh, he yeah. makes Donald Trump feel like, like he's a God every day. And for a guy that's right. so homophobic, he spends a lot of time sucking his yeah. tool. Uh, 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 this guy, uh, uh, he, I've never seen anything like him. Donald Trump, he, all he does is reinforce how brilliant and what a genius he is. And Trump buys into it. And I think that that happens to all celebrities a little bit in the beginning. It's really hard not to, you know, take advantage of that. It, it alters you a little bit and you hope you come out of it on the other side. Okay. But you know, you, you realize that, you know, you can, if you become a squeaky wheel, you'll get the grease and, and, uh, you know, directing tends to beat that out of you. That was the good thing about directing is you realize that you, you can't really go there, but it affects 
us. It's offered to you. Uh, people, you know, it's very much offered that, you know, uh, almost with an apology. Hey, you have to work tomorrow. Is that, is that okay? Uh, <laughs> versus mm -hmm. your call is six. Be there. Um, there's right. a sense of tentativeness. And I don't know where it comes from. It certainly isn't helped by agents and publicists who know that you will give them 10% of everything you make if, if they tell you how great you are all the time. Sure. Um, so right. that happens a lot. Well, first of all, two things. I had not known about your childhood as an athlete. So the idea that you are in one of my other all time, the, the movie version of, of sort of cultural touchstone filled of dreams, which is, I just think I showed it to my kids recently. I mean, it, it really holds up. It's such a beautiful movie with such a beautiful message. And the idea that you were in this, um, iconic baseball movie that must have been wonderful it was pretty great i couldn't you know the baseball end of it um you know but even by well, then you i yeah i wasn't playing and i and i was but even even by then i was i was still i mean i was still playing semi pro baseball at that time uh, uh as we did it so the idea of going out and grabbing a ball and taking a swing at a ball didn't have a lot of allure to me. I think I took one swing and I don't know where it went. It probably didn't go anywhere good. Uh, um, but I just didn't care. But you do have a move in the movie that could show you that I, that, I mean, that needed a baseball player, which is when I walk in front of home plate and they throw the ball and swing the bat. And Phil Robinson and I, it's a, you know, a close call, it's a big stunt that you really would have to have the confidence of being a ball player to be able to do that. And that, that was right. the one time where being a baseball player really helped me in, in that movie. Um, you know, the baseball in that movie isn't too awfully good. Uh, the guys that are playing baseball right. aren't Kevin's the best. Kevin was the best baseball player of the actors that were in it. And he didn't even play a baseball player. So uh, he's right. just one of those athletes, one of those perfect kind of people that can do everything well, you know. Um, right. But it was a great movie. It was the heart. And when I remember that, when I got that script, it was at the end of the first year of 30-something that we shot it. And it was towards the end of the first season that I got the audition. And it was pretty, I was pretty, pretty hot. As a, by the end of that first year, the whole show was hot, and you know we had 20 million viewers back then, and and the show was getting critical acclaim, and they sent me the script, but the agent didn't tell me what part, and it it was just a little independent film at the time that, and um, I read it, and I knew that the part that I would be best in was the brother, that I could really help the right. audience jump into Kevin's characters you know into his lap story-wise i could really felt like i could get him to leapfrog me and and go to the science fiction part of the movie and right. and and make that leap which is what my function is um and right. i you know i've watched it i love watching it with kevin <laughs> hotly enough uh uh and he wants to watch it with me for some reason when we've i've seen it with him a, a couple times and he just looks at me and smiles on... the whole time. Really? I love that you guys watch yeah, it looked... together. Just on... 
Are there anniversaries no, or special dates or just from time to time? Yeah, they're more special. There's the, oh, the first time we screened, he said, come here, you're sitting next to me. He grabbed me as I walked into the mm -hmm. theater at the premiere. And then we did one in right. Hollywood and we've done them back in Dyersville. And I think that, you know, as a director, Academy Award director, you know, he, he, he just really gets a kick out of, I think the, the energy I, I bring to the end of the movie, I think he really felt helped him make choices. And when we were shooting it, you could see that, that he would, I would start often. And I learned this, you know, uh, doing a lot of TV and, and other feature films. But when you're shooting the bleacher scene in Field of Dreams, we shot from a, a myriad of angles and it took days. The whole last scene where James Earl Jones speech about uh, people will come and the, the, the whole ending with the girl and dropping off the bleachers, all of that stuff, it took days and days to shoot because we shot directionally. And when the light was even and, and matching and just right. So we would pick up and stop and pick up and, you know, cut and then come back a day later and pick it up mid argument. And I, I remember one day just sort of starting, we were about to roll and I could see we were about to roll and I could see the slate was out and was going to come in the clapper that for anybody out there that doesn't know that, you know, that people hit in movies and I could see, that was close, and I knew not to make any noise over the clap sound because the sound mixer was going to look for that peak so he could sync up all of the sound perfectly. And so you don't want to make any noise over it. So about 30 or 40 seconds before we'd roll, I'd just start with Kevin saying, you're an idiot. You're a fucking idiot. And he looked at me the first time, and the crew stopped and said, what's Busfield doing? Is he arguing with Kevin? And I just would start saying, my sister, I love her. She built, and I would just start improvising with him. And we, so when we, they said action and we were coming in mid scene, I wasn't acting on action. I wasn't waiting until the director said action and then trying to go from zero to a hundred. I notoriously right. get myself, especially when we're doing pieces of a scene, I like to roll into it. Uh, and, and make sure that I'm acting well before action so I can go from off camera to on camera and not feel that adjustment. And it was great. It worked for us. And Kevin loved it. And he would say, do that thing, do that thing. Let's do that thing. Mm -hmm. Let's do that thing. Um, when it worked, and, and one time he gave me a ride home, and I, I know this because he said it on Larry King. He was petrified I was going to talk about work with him because it looked like I was so into work that if I rode back all the way the 45 minutes to the hotel, that all I was going to do is talk about acting. <laughs> and I You're was like, no. no I was that guy. I was like, can we get, can we get stoned or something? Can we get, do you have any beer here? Come on. Oh what are we God. doing? Let's go. Story. He, can you just, before we go, tell the story of getting stopped by a cop when you got your new Porsche? Oh God, that's not me. That's not you. I don't know if that's me. I don't think that's me. There was a, there was a, no, the story, there is a story. It's is a Michael Matt? J. Fox story. No, it was Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. The story is Michael J. Fox. This is the story. Okay. Michael J. I was on, I was on Family Ties. And uh, 
I was a recurring character on Family Ties, playing uh, Alex Keaton's buddy, Doug. And Anthony Edwards, who'd done the Nerds movie with me, had come to the taping. And Fox and I and, and Tony Edwards went down into Santa Monica and had a lot of beers. And Fox had a brand new 300Z, and, and Edwards had a little MG. And they decided they were going to race each other up Wilshire Boulevard. I had an apartment in Brentwood. And I'm like in a 73 Toyota Corolla. It's 1984. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have the ability to keep up with these guys. And uh, Fox gets pulled over uh, right around the park. Uh, Lincoln Park. I'm not sure which park. It's up around 24th or 25th. He gets pulled over. And he doesn't know how to get to my house. Tony knows how to get to my house. We're buddies from the Revenge of the Nerds movie. So uh, I, I know where he's going, he, and he knows where he's going. But Fox has no idea how to get to my, my place. So he gets pulled over, and I pull around, and we're, we're wasted. I mean, we should not have been driving, should be dead, would have been thrown in jail today. And, and my, Mike gets out of his, the cop, I run over and hide behind a tree. I'm sure the cop probably saw me, but I'm hiding behind a tree to see if I got to go get him at the Santa Monica station. And his car is a talking car. I mean, you open the door and it would say the door is open. The door is open. And the cop goes up to his car, says, get out. And, and Mike, Mike gets out and leans against the car, wasted, and the car leaves the door open. And the car says, and it's a brand new car, the car says, your door is open. And Mike says to the cop, I know. <laughs> and then the cop says, what? And the car says, the door is open. And Mike goes, I know. And, and the, again, the door. And, and Mike's like, look. I, and he's not connecting. By that point, the cop starts smiling, recognizes him. And he goes, how far are you going? He said, not far. He said, get out of here. Uh, and Mike got back in his car, and I ran up, and I said, come on. I'll show you where we're going. I'll show you how but to it was a great, follow the Corolla. Uh, the Corolla. I'll show you. Follow the <laughs> The, ba the baby shit yellow 73 Toyota Corolla. Yeah. Which, uh, that's, that's All right. That's the Michael J. Fox. So the last time I saw you and your beautiful wife, Melissa Gilbert, uh, the shiniest couple in Narrowsburg, we were all at the Heron, <laughs> a great restaurant. And I really hope we can all be in that restaurant again soon enjoying that incredible food and conversation. And uh, I really look forward to that, Tim. I do too. And I want to see Dominic again. It was really fun seeing you guys. Uh, uh, Your husband's pretty handsome. Uh, my wife is absolutely beautiful and shiny, but you guys are pretty shiny yourself. My husband is handsome and your wife is beautiful. Um, <laughs> and they are really beautiful. They're beautiful humans inside and out. Um, we all have to figure out a project to do together on Zoom. We'll do a we Zoom did, movie, we, the four of us. I would love that. And I, I tell you what, you know, we did do one 
and I think this is what you could see. I was executive producing a TV show for ABC, and I said, it's nonsense that we're spending this kind of money. I was a director, producer, executive producer. And I said, we're going to shoot a movie. We can shoot a movie in a day. And I said, we'll do it Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm style. We'll go off a five to seven page outline. And we showed up and Laura Ennis was directing for me. And she came and, and Bell Shouse and Melissa and I showed up, woke up the camera operator and brought the sound guy. All together, there were eight of us. With a state with a first AD, and we shot a forty-four minute film. Right. I I think that that day is what we could start doing soon. I think we could do that up here, uh, especially if we all sort of took our temperature every day. But well, I think we could do that, and I think you're going to start to see small films that are garage band style that are going to be able to provide long form content. Anything really to yeah. get you yeah. to not have to hear all day long throughout the virus, mom, 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 What do you, what do you, do you have a spy cam? Listen, before we go, we were going to dedicate this episode to your granddaughter because it's her birthday. So. Let us not let us not forget to do that. Happy birthday, Ruby, my two-year-old granddaughter, who's so precious and perfect, just phenomenal. She's Aww. it's a great love. Yeah. A grandchild's a great love. Life imitating yeah. art, thirty-something else this time uh, <laughs> in real life for Ruby. Um, Tim, I'll talk to you soon. Give Melissa my love. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time with me and my listeners today. And, um, I look forward to seeing you in the near future. Thanks a lot. It was so fun. Hey, I am so excited to share some news with you guys. For the last few months, I've been working on another project that I've been calling Little Known Facts 2.0, Stage Network, an incredible new streaming platform which promises to be Netflix for theater lovers, asked me to do Little Known Facts as a filmed series, a talk show, as it were, in front of cameras. And I really thought about it for a long time because the thing that's made this podcast so special is that all of my guests have been able to share deep, intimate truths about their lives because we are in this tiny, comforting confessional that is the podcast booth. And I really had to think hard, could I still deliver the same kind of intimate, raw, hilarious, and unique interviews if cameras were involved? But I think I figured it out. And I'm so grateful to Stage Network for allowing me to make my dream of sharing incredible friends with you in this whole new way. So I shot six episodes. The first one uh, is with Ben Platt. Other guests include Celia Keenan-Bolger, Zachary Quinto, George Salazar, Nikki M. James, John Slattery. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to share them with you. Stage Network really is an amazing place. Not only is it filled with incredible original content, uh, it has licensed so much 
theater-related content, documentaries and films, and all sorts of incredible programming. I feel like I dreamed up a network and someone else created it, and here it is. And the fact that I'm involved in even a small way with this incredible, incredible network is just truly an honor. So to that end... Uh, to watch all of the content, including Little Known Facts, the series, go to watchstage.com. Enjoy, and I hope you like it. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.